From Glitch HQ on Riverside Avenue and chilling out, Max and relax and all cool in Minneapolis, this is Nice Games Club, the show where nice game devs talk gaming and game development. I'm Martha McGarry and I make nice games. I'm Stephen McGregor and I make nice games. And I'm Martha Croy, I too make nice games. For this week's episode, our topics are 90s consoles and video game soundtracks. And so, if everyone is ready, let's start. Brought a lot of energy to that intro. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I had to, you know, I had to be cool, right? (laughs) You don't have to be. (laughs) (laughs) It's the 90s. No one was cool. (laughs) But everyone thought they were cool. Right. Even in their tracksuits and and jumpers and stuff like that. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) As was the style at the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (sighs) So we were talking a lot about, uh, because we're trying to come up with it adjectives to the beginning of the show we yeah. were like looking up 90s slang we were yeah it's and, a whole rabbit hole and the, guys the main thing is uh the providence of some of these terms like some of them were 70s slang yeah that came back in the 90s mm-hmm. some were clearly 80s slang that yeah. just the writers were too young to remember yeah <laughs> from the 90s uh-huh. and uh so yeah we uh, we took a weird uh, rigorous academic approach to it for some reason <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> I looked up the etymology of radical and even and all that. Turns out it's made popular by the Ninja Turtles. Mm-hmm. And uh, those came out technically in the 80s. Yes. So I was right when I thought they were <laughs> 80s. But most of their run was in up till 1996. So technically, they're a 90s thing too. Yep. I'll admit defeat. We can all agree <laughs> that all that in a bag of chips is 90. It's yeah. the 90s thing. It's the 90s. Even though I have no memory of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, like 90s stuff is coming back now. Yeah. It's like a big thing. It's great. And I was telling you guys before the show that when I was young, uh, when I was in middle school, it was about 1998 or something. Mm-hmm. And I remember... I was eight. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I won't mention my age. <laughs> yeah. And I gave a speech in a social studies class um, where I argued that the 80s were coming back and nobody believed me. Mm. And I was insistent. I'm like, no, it's, it's worked on these 20-year cycles. It was like this 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 uh, thesis I had. Yeah. And like even my teacher was like, that's cute. Oh, hey. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey. But in the, in the t- in time sense, it's borne out. And so like I've been dreading the return of the 90s oh. for a while now. Oh. Back in the 90s, I was in a very famous TV show. <laughs> Bojack Horseman? Anybody? No, no? I don't watch the '90s no. are back. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways, but yeah, but now all the the young people because they were only a barely around in the '90s. The way I was barely around in the '80s, like the the '90s has this nostalgic thing. The way the '80s did for me, I liked when the '80s came back. Yeah. So I have to be like, even though I'm like grumpy about the '90s being back, I get it. <laughs> like I I was there once. Yeah. '90s are cool. Yeah. But people weren't cool in the I don't know. Yeah. There was a bunch of not cool stuff happening in the nineties too. This is true. <laughs> it was the end of history. Don't you remember? No. no. Oh yeah, right. The Y two K and all that. No. Oh, <laughs> oh man, Y two K, that was a fun time. No, the end of history is this idea that after the Berlin Wall fell, uh, yeah. there was no, there was nothing left to, for the world to fight about. Oh. Was the idea, right? <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But it was this very first world idea of ah. like once because uh, the Cold War was a big deal. Yeah, like, right. It was the threat of, of uh, annihilation. Yeah. And so when that threat was gone uh, and the, the smaller th- uh, threats in the world remained, we didn't take them seriously enough or we didn't care enough about them in comparison. And there was this idea that like 
now and that's with a lot of, there's a lot of uh, positive futurism in the 90s ah. because there was this optimism about like the world like the all the struggles are behind us and it was very right. naive of course yeah. but it was an interesting time it was called the end of history because mm. the idea would be there'd be nothing left interesting to write about oh okay i did not know that that's cool yeah. uh yeah <laughs> <laughs> well Oh, wait, we still have more, some more meta stuff. Glit, but glit. my transition there would have been, let's beam over. To <laughs> <laughs> Just everyone Our knows radical she, topic. she had a great one. Yeah. <laughs> and wants you to know. Yes. Yeah. But uh, GlitchCon. Yes. It's yeah. happening. It happened. It has happened. It happened. By the time this episode is out. Yeah, it really came quick. Yeah, it did. It um, was, yeah, the whole thing. Yeah, so GlitchCon beep, beep. normally happens in the Roadrunner. spring. Um, 90s. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> keep going. Um, but this year, there there was, uh, uh, I mean, a whole bunch of different things uh, factors uh, pushed it uh, into the summer, into the fall. Yep. And then uh, issues with the venue, and uh, and what ended up happening is um, GlitchCon, which has already happened, so it's n- n- old news to anyone who went. But for those of you who didn't go um, or didn't hear about it in time, um, it was uh, it, the event kind of changed a little bit. It yes. was free this year, which yes. is really cool. Um, it was held at the um, uh, uh, Twin Cities uh, PBS affiliate, uh, TPT, which is partnered with Glitch on a lot of cool stuff. Mm-hmm. And they hosted it, and it was on a Monday and Tuesday instead of over a weekend. And so it was, it's very much different. Um, it had a very short lead time because it kind of all came together at the last minute. Yes. Um, and we haven't gone yet, but it's happened already for you listening to this. I assume it went great. Um, and uh, <laughs> hopefully um, the partnership with TPT, I think, is a really interesting uh, angle on it that's, that's, that's new this year. My brother was interviewed by TPT. Oh. That happened before we're recording this podcast. Yeah. So, yeah, y'all can, we'll link to that somewhere. Anyway, I feel kind of bad because we didn't mention this on a, some previous episodes. Yeah. We could have actually promoted it a little bit. That's true. But it just it came so quickly mm-hmm. that it just, we didn't have time to, to, to uh, get it together. But the fact that it did come together quickly is a testament to like the fact that Glitch is pretty nimble and can put on an event uh, when it needs to. It, you know, when, uh, when things aren't, uh, like when all the planning can't be done the way that it was, say, last year. They can still throw on a great show. Yeah. So that, that's pretty exciting. So hopefully it went great. I assume it did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and hopefully it's a sign of like future cool things for next year too. Yes. Yeah. Let's beam on over okay. to 90s <laughs> topic, 90s consoles with Mark. <laughs> Thanks, Martha. <laughs> <laughs> Energize. <laughs> I don't know. It's like it we're on, a, on like a weird sort of pop culture newscast or something. I, I don't know. It feels like it. Uh-huh. We're talking about pop culture things. Uh-huh. I hope this is nobody's first episode of this program. <laughs> <laughs> we apologize. <laughs> we're normally much more put together than this. Um, yeah. So my topic is 90s consoles, uh, partly because you know, we chatted at the beginning. Like I grew up in the 90s and I remember a lot of these failed hardware devices coming and going, you know, if through the, you know, the circuit cities and the software boutiques ah, of yeah. the world. Uh, um, <laughs> circuit city. <laughs> and, um, and I want to talk about it a little bit because um, uh, of where it's the place in history. And also there's just a bunch of really cool, cool stories. So um, the, I want to frame this by talking about like the weird hardware in various eras. Mm-hmm. So the thing that interests me about this era particularly is that it, everything was very, home consumer electronics and that's that doesn't sound like it's a big deal but compared to say the weird hardware of the 80s which was very a personal computer your commodore 64s your your bbc micros right Right, right. that we talked about and martha brought up in a previous episode 
um, that the the sort of enthusiast uh, um, uh, niche hardware was born out of the trends from the the uh, home computing, which was brand new and interesting and not altogether mainstream. And so a lot of them failed, right? Yeah. And so in the 90s, that uh, was a different story. It was born out of the trends of the home theater market ah. because a lot of those companies uh, started getting into uh, computing and uh, video games, whereas previously they were mostly just about making stereos and VCRs and stuff. Sure. Oh, that makes so much sense. Yeah. And in the two th- and that's what I'll, I'll be talking about. Yeah. But uh, but uh, there there it, it continues. So in the two thousands, the trend was more about um, uh, hardware miniaturization. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the era of the MP three player. Yeah. Right. So a lot of the 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 sort of niche uh, weird hardware were little devices, right, or smaller set top boxes or add on components and stuff like that. Um, and then of course in the twenty tens, everything was just Android. <laughs> <laughs> because that's the trend in weird hardware is mm-hmm. that everything you could you now have a, a a free open source operating system you can build your weird thing on mm-hmm. and so everything is based on android now um and i, I and that's sort of it, it is interesting like the different trends in technology impact not just the big successes right but all the little at, the little um hangers on and also rans i think that tells you a lot about the eras of of how technology changes and grows yeah and i think i think it's super fascinating so uh, let me get into the 90s of it all uh, with this this home uh, consumer electronics stuff. Um, and so the first thing I want to talk about is the Nintendo PlayStation. So because yeah, so th- this uh, I think a lot of people know about this, but um, uh, Sony was contracted by Nintendo. Um, uh, originally, the, there was a um, um, uh, we'll put some links in the show notes because this is not the main part of what I'm going to be talking about, but mm-hmm. I do want to touch on it briefly. Yeah. There was an employee at Sony who really was into video games, or rather was into the production of video game hardware, but Sony wasn't itself that interested in it. Sony's this huge, huge company, uh, still is, but, even, but then it was even, even bigger, uh, uh, you know, uh, B-Month in the industry. Right. And um, this employee um, uh, helped design the sound chip on the Super Nintendo. And, um, and Sony, and it was kind of a small project at Sony, no one was really paying attention to it. But then that uh, employee wanted to do more, wanted to, to produce Sony's own, own hardware, like we had this, and got, got some approvals, but it was very tenuous, and a, rela- a relationship with Nintendo. So um, the idea was going to be to make a CD-ROM add-on uh, for the Super Nintendo. The oh. SNES CD. Oh, okay. They were going to call it. Yeah. And um, this is actually, there were already a couple of CD uh, add-ons or CD systems by 1991. Yes. Um, the PC Engine, or as we call it, the TurboGrafx-16, had a, a CD um, attachment. Yeah. Um, a t- Sega CD, right? Sega CD was, I think, I think 91. Yeah, I have it here on, the, on my list. Yeah, I think it's 91. Mm. Um, that had just come out. Um, the uh, Atari Jaguar wasn't out yet, but the, there was uh, rumors of it, and because like nothing at Atari stayed secret, I guess. Um, and so it was. A, it was a. It was the, the trend was that right. Yeah. And before the next generation of consoles, the, the the CD add-on was like a thing. And so Sony wanted to do that with Nintendo, and they went as far as they made a prototype. They started developing branding. So PlayStation was really going to be the Nintendo PlayStation, and it was a bit of a of a pun because it, like. You know, you could play CDs on it, so you could play games or play music. It was, ah. and that's what that's where PlayStation comes from, right? right? Um, is this this the notion of the add-on was actually a big part of the naming of the thing? Oh, okay. Um, and there's even uh, there's you can look online. There's like great great photos of like um, Super Nintendo controllers with Sony branding. Oh dang! Um, because the other trend of this is when a third party company would make 
um, a, a video game hardware uh, licensed. So like uh, I have a bunch of Sega examples I'll get into. Very frequently you'd have the, the company that built it would get their own branding on the on the stuff. Mm-hmm. So you have these like weird examples of like Sega controllers with like a Panasonic logo on it and stuff like that. Um, but this is one where you'd have the Nintendo with, with uh, Sony on it. It made no sense at all. It doesn't make any sense to us in sitting here in 2018, but um, it wasn't that unusual. Anyways, the famously, um, it, the week they were going to announce this partnership, um, uh, th- there was a bunch of like backroom dealing and um, it's, it's a lot of the story is apocryphal, but basically um, uh, Nintendo was like, never mind Sony, we're going to go with Philips and, uh, to make the, uh, our CD attachment. Right. And they announced it, I think it was at CES. Um, and uh, you know, Sony was spurned and they had, they had this prototype, which yeah. th- there is a recently um, uh, the, a, pr- a prototype the Sony, uh, Nintendo PlayStation surfaced and actually a working device. Um, well, I'll, I'll try to find that YouTube link because it's like, it's really interesting. Um, mostly it just played like test stuff. It wasn't, but oh, it, yeah. and it really was the point of these add-ons was just to add more data to a, a, a um, to a game. It was, you could do more stuff with it. Yeah, but it wasn't meant to actually increase the power of the system. Mm-hmm. We think of the Sega CD as the more common one because it did increase the power, but it was, that was actually a bit of an exception oh. uh, to how, to how these things were normally supposed to go anyway. It was really just about getting those 650 megabytes. Like that's really what it was about. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Um, anyways, so, um, what's great about the, the Nintendo PlayStation is that it's, it's spun off into two different, totally separate projects. One is of course the Sony PlayStation, right? Mm -hmm. The Sony was like, well, we have all this technology. We've done all this work. Let's just keep going. Right. Because Sony, um, also as an entertainment company was already starting to make deals with, um, uh, game developers. Um, if not for that fact, they probably w- the PlayStation probably wouldn't have continued as a project. Mm-hmm. But because Sony had bought a music uh, the the um, the music label, the I think it was Columbia or one of the uh, CBS Records or something, it, it became Sony. Um, one of those I forget. But um, the um, Sony became more than a consumer electronics giant; they became a, a content provider in that era, right? Yeah. And so um, th- they had leveraged a lot of that um, and they were going to make games for their Nintendo PlayStation. And I think one of the reasons that Nintendo backed out is because they had really terrible, they had a, a terrible deal with Sony about who was going to get royalties uh, on, on software titles, mm-hmm. which Nintendo really cared about. And they kind of gave the store away. Uh, um, okay. Um, yeah. Or it was the other way around. I don't remember. It's very, <laughs> the, basically it was a bad deal. Yeah. And, yeah. and not, and, and so when they walked away, it wasn't like the big tragedy that we think of it now, um, it just happened to lead to these other crazy events. So led, of course, to the PlayStation. But also, N- Nintendo now was was partnering with Philips, and Philips and yes. Sony co-developed the CD format, mm-hmm. right? So one, the like, they, it, Philips made a lot of sense as a partner. Like it's the name you don't really know these days, but it made sense to partner with them. Um, that never happened. Uh, 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 people may remember not owning a Super Nintendo <laughs> CD. <laughs> uh, and but what ended up happening with that was that uh, Philips went on to make its own uh, console as well, um, but not using any. They didn't like get as far as Sony did with their prototypes. It wasn't really more than backroom meetings, I think, mm. between them. But they were serious about making a multimedia device, so they made the Philips CDI. Yes. And as a result of the deals they made with Nintendo, they had the license to make uh, games with Nintendo properties. Right. So if if you know the CDI at all. Um, you probably know it for its terrible Zelda titles, yes. which were like uh, sort of full motion video, cartoon, uh, very, very bad yeah. games. I'm so hungry, I could eat an Octorok. 
Right. That's what they say. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. It's really good. You know, there's I, a, there's um, a funny Polygon video that they released recently of Brian David Gilbert putting all of the Zelda properties, including those ones, yeah. into the same timeline, and it's oh, great. <laughs> so they made, they made three Zelda games. They did. And Oof. one Mario game. Mm. Um, Hotel, uh, Mario? Hotel Mario. Yeah. yeah. Um, Hotel Mario. It's me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and you know it's so funny I've done so much research on these things I haven't I don't think I've even seen a clip of these terrible Zelda games I've just read about how terrible they are and I trust that's they're true they're bad yeah they're bad um, and I have played the CDI when I was younger oh, okay. I, I, I've had my hands on one so cool. I know how bad those games yeah. are <laughs> so uh, I guess I don't need the, the nostalgia trip exactly fair enough um, but that was a result of that so um, it's it's difficult to say whether the CDI would have existed if not for uh, the discussions with Nintendo but I think it probably would have Mm. Um, but the licensing for those properties was a direct result of those conversations and, yeah. and those meetings and those initial deals, even though it resulted in, as far as I know, no engineering meetings or hardware or anything um, that came out of it. Okay, so that, I, you know, I couldn't, this topic wouldn't be complete without a mention of the, that, that saga. Mm-hmm. But that's not the main thing I wanted to talk about. I want to talk about the, um, the three, and then there's a fourth, but the three main examples of these sort of consumer electronics set-top box style uh, consumer, you know, um, uh, video game systems mm-hmm. that were also meant to be part of your home theater system, mm. and sort of that idea of a '90s system, and the how seriously everybody took this as what the future was going to be. So uh, the first one is the Philips CDI, and uh, it was the uh, first home console to have any kind of internet features. Oh wow! And what was interesting about it was that it was had um, it was very. I wouldn't don't say don't want to say cheaply made, but it was very efficiently made. It had uh-huh. a, uh, almost no operating system. Everything ran off the discs, mm. and I mean that's not uncommon for an older system. But for a multimedia system of this style, they usually had a little bit more overhead in in in, in firmware and, and operating systems. Whereas the CDI was much more just about the CD format. That was its that was its shtick. And Philips, being the you know the creator of the CD format, they had the sort of um, the place in in pop culture and in society to say like we are the stewards of s- the compact disc and here is the interactive next version of it and so that's yeah. what they pushed it on ah. and then the software would then take care of itself sort of after that was the idea uh-huh. um, that's partly why it wasn't a huge success um, yeah but it it, it it was a pioneering in a lot of ways it, it um, there was um, it had a lot of like um, uh, edutainment and uh, educational stuff. And a, a disk that would do email and oh. a web browser. Like, oh, okay. Um, and this is 1991. So it's kind of crazy, right? Because that, that those things were barely around in any capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, the idea was, at that time, is the society was unsure how the world was going to access these things, like the internet. Um, were people going to buy... Uh, PCs because they were still very expensive. Mm-hmm. Were they go- were companies going to start making cheaper PCs, and that would be how how it people would would uh, would be able to to get them? Um, they what people didn't account for, and what actually ended up happening was things just got cheaper. Like yeah. the, it wasn't that they needed to make ch- cheaper, smaller, less capable devices. It's that components got cheaper every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, or would they be more of these dedicated set top box living room style devices we just didn't know yeah and so you look at a lot of these old things like web tv and like a bunch of these different things from the 90s and you kind of think like oh that was so stupid but people just didn't know how we were going to be using these technologies and uh anyway this is one of the first examples of an attempt to in the home theater style of it um that was pretty interesting and so they really focused on um on this sort of like um 
uh, education and uh, entertainment style uh, uh, um, use cases, not as much on games. But because it was a pretty niche product, yeah. and because this is how it always goes, games were the things that sold the best on the system. Right. And so and that kind of caught them by surprise because they really believed in like the CD format to do everything, like to be this... Sure. This 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 force of good in the world, and so they didn't quite un- they didn't have the ability to understand what it would be good for now, and um, but games sold the best, and so they said okay fine fine. So then they tried to pivot towards gaming, and it just was too late. Yeah, um, the, it was it, even though they had done a lot to keep costs down, uh, it was still pretty expensive compared to um, even PCs of the era, mm-hmm. and so um, it, it just yeah it it it, it failed, um, but. Uh, and this is going to be a theme for uh, these types of devices. Um, the CDI was not a, it wasn't a Philips product exactly. It was a Philips technology. Okay. Um, they licensed the, the specs to other companies. Oh. So you would have um, uh, uh, like uh, Magnavox, LG, Sony even made one. Uh, Kyocera, all of the sort of like people who'd make a VCR made one of these things because oh. that was the attitude. Is that you developed a technology, you didn't develop a product. Oh, is it like uh, graphics cards, sort of? A little bit, a little bit of how graphics cards are sold today. Okay. Uh, where the the um, and th- and that is actually interesting because it's one of the only legacies of the nineties <laughs> <laughs> is, is that graphics cards have always been like that. Mm. Um, but um, but it used to be that so much more was like that as mm. well. Interesting. And that's definitely true of the the Philips Philips CDI. That said, Philips is the company that made the most successful of the models. But uh, the, my list is like seven or eight, and that's even a partial list of companies actually produced models. Huh. And there were a bunch of different versions of it, too. They had little iterations. And the thing was only on sale for like four or five years. Wow. Um, and it had like eight or nine different models. And then those were then all made by eight or nine different companies. Mm. Philips wasn't necessarily that interested in selling a product. They were yeah. more interested in making a technology. And that's yeah. true of the next one on this list, the 3DO. Ah. Um, and um, th- this is commonly so, so, uh, seen as the Panasonic 3DO. But in fact, Panasonic didn't have anything to do with the creation of, of it. They just sold its most popular version. It was the 3DO company that was founded to, to make this spec. But very much like the CDI, it was a, a, a technology that was meant to be licensed to different companies to make their own versions of it. And Panasonic made the first and most popular because it really failed like immediately this one. Mm. Um, but it, um, uh, yeah, Panasonic, Sanyo, and Gold Star, which I think is like a sub-brand of LG. I'm not certain on that one exactly. Uh, they made models. So there's just three companies made models for this. But uh, Samsung, Toshiba, even AT&T, because they were making hardware back then, mm-hmm. um, uh, they all had licenses to make these. It just failed too quickly and they never got around to it. Ah. Although I, there was a thing I read that AT&T actually did have uh, prototypes that they demoed at like CES oh, in the early 90s. Hmm. Uh, this is 1993. And um, two really interesting things about this is one, it was the most powerful console of its era. Um, hmm. it, this was before the PlayStation and Sega Saturn. Sure. And it was... Uh, um, it, it was a three. It was designed for three D games, so it was focused. Uh, uh, this processing power was focused on that, mm-hmm. which was basically a first. Yeah, it was sold as a really powerful device. That was its marketing angle. It's like right. this is the next generation of powerful thing, but it did look like a VCR, and it was designed to go into your home stereo system. Yeah, and um, and it was meant to to be to to have different variations. Like you'd have a you'd buy one from one company that was a higher end model or a lower end, you know. And it was just a it was is a bad idea basically, mm. and that's why it failed. Um, but um, the the its power was part of its big selling point, and so when the PlayStation came out and was just a little more powerful, oh, 
uh, like it it suddenly the, it, like everything it had been selling itself on was pointless at that yeah, like by their own wrong. by their own standard they and they kind of didn't see that coming like they didn't yeah. assume that the news thing would come out Dang. <laughs> but like 93 94 95 like so many pieces of hardware came out in those years mm-hmm. um that it was sort of i don't know it's a self-inflicted wound they didn't have anything else to leverage on yeah the most the the thing i love the most about this system is uh, and I, I had a cousin who had, like had all this stuff and had one of these nice. and is that um it only had one controller port and you're like oh well that's terrible but yeah. it actually supported up to eight controllers how did it do that yeah it daisy chained the controllers together. It daisy chained the controller. Oh my god! Together. So one controller plugged into another controller. Yeah. So you'd have you one person would be on the left side of the couch, and then uh-huh. the person next to them would plug into them, and oh. so on. And hey, you know, think about it. Like back then, you had to buy an expensive accessory uh-huh. to get more than two controller ports, oh. and the controller ports like put it uh, increase the price of the hardware. Sure. So daisy chaining them would increase the price of a controller. But it could keep costs down for the base consumer. Um, so, like, there's some logic to it, right? I mean, if you're thinking of it that way. Well, it was 1993. You had to think about it that way. Okay. Right? Okay. And the 3DO was very expensive. Oh, sure. And so, that, that was, like, one of the things they tried to do to keep those costs down a little bit. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah. And it was very expensive and nobody bought one. <laughs> so, except for my cousin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um. But uh, the thing of the 3DO did have a lot of, it did had some success in getting developers. Okay. So when you think of the CDI as an example, you're like, oh, that thing had, there was no good games for it, right? Mm-hmm. Of course not. Mm-hmm. But um, the 3DO really did have, a, it had a ports of uh, um, a Wolfenstein and Doom because it was the only system that could run them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was sort of PC-like, so it could get those. It had a very, it's one of the most popular games was Myst. Myst was on there. Oh, um, And yeah. Myst is a game you want to play in your living room, right? It wasn't, and people didn't because it was a, you know, it was a PC game. But like it was it, on 3DO, it was kind of perfect uh, for that, um, and it, it, that that sold pretty well, at least all things considering. And it had really good arcade ports uh-huh. because it used uh, a CD-ROM. It had the ability to store all of the sound data that would normally be on an arcade board. Oh, and okay, so yeah. like Super Street Fighter Two Turbo, like its most faithful adaptation was the 3DO version, for example. Um, so that's sort of interesting. But the thing collapsed within like a year, year and a half, something like yeah. that. Um, because all these other things came out. Um, so, okay, so the last one I want to talk about, and this big inspiration for this topic, um, uh, at least in this category, is the Pioneer Laser Active. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, this was a Laserdisc player. And so, people who don't own a Laserdisc, Laserdiscs are, uh, they look, they're the size of 12 inch, uh, the size of 12 inch vinyl records, oh. but they're shiny like a CD, um, and they're analog. It's analog video. Um, that, okay. that is, uh, yeah, it's, it's really weird. It's not digital the way a CD is. And it was pretty popular because it was more reliable and, and, and didn't have any, it wouldn't wear out like a VHS would, at least not until disc rot set in 20 years later. Uh-huh. But, um, uh, it was a sort of an enthusiast format. It was been around since the late seventies, but it didn't really take off exactly compared to, uh, to VHS in the home video market. And then when CD came around, um, you know, that was definitely higher quality because it was digital reproduction and the, 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 everything was better for audio, but you could, you could buy music on Laserdisc, but it was not, not a common use for it. It was, yeah. it was for video, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because you couldn't put video on CDs, really. Not exactly. There was a video, CD video format, but it wasn't great. The quality was very low. And so um, all of these CD systems were coming out, right? The, the, the 3DO, the, um, the, uh, the TurboGrafx CD, the Sega CD, 
these were really popular. Right. And so uh, Pioneer was saying, like, you know what? Um, we just added the ability to put a digital, there's a digital sector on the Laserdisc to store audio. Uh, and then the video would still play on the analog section, but then that way the soundtrack to the movie could be played back digitally. That was an improvement to the Laserdisc format. Yeah. And I said, well, if we're going to do that, let's just make a LD-ROM format. So they made, a, a, basically it's a giant uh, a, a laser disc with a digital section that you'd put software on, mm -hmm. and then you'd still have all that section for analog video. So basically it was better than a CD-ROM, even though it was a laser disc. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I think a lot of times when people think of laser disc, they think of how like sort of old-fashioned old it is and how antiquated, mm -hmm. but they're comparing it to DVDs. Yeah. Compared to CD, it's much better. So... Um, that's the long way of saying that uh, Pioneer thought it would be a great idea to make a video game console based on Laserdisc using this, this uh, LD-ROM format. And the way that a lot of those games worked is it was really great for rail shooters because you would play back this analog video and then you'd overlay sprites and other uh, uh, data oh, on top cool. of it. That makes sense. So like a game like uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Dragon Lair, like those sort of Laserdisc games of the arcades, um, those were done very similarly, but back then the, all the digital port portions were on ROM chips like a normal arcade game and then the Laserdisc was just the analog video separately. Mm. This was a way to put it all together and make it feasible for a home console. So this is was, this was how LaserActive worked. Now this is the best part about the Pioneer LaserActive is it it wasn't itself a video game system. Okay. It was just a thing that played discs. Oh, It had this expansion port that you plugged in. It was like the size of like, um, like a hardback book. Um, okay. Or maybe like a I guess more like a paperback. Like a small book um, that you'd slot, slot into the front of the system. And then that was the game console. And so they sold two different versions of it. One was called the Mega LD. Okay. And if you know your uh, European terms for the Sega Genesis, you know that that is, in fact, a Sega Genesis module for this device. Mm. You plugged it in. It had two controller ports and a cartridge slot. So it was just a straight-up Genesis that yeah. you plugged into the front of this thing. Okay. But... Because when you plugged it in, it also could now read discs off the Laserdisc. So you had Sega Laserdisc. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> and so there were a couple of Sega CD ports yeah. that were put on Laserdisc for this purpose. But there were mostly, it was actually specific games that were in this, uh, unique to this format. And so it was sort of like a Sega CD, but it was Laserdisc. So very, very strange. And then there was a second module that was a TurboGrafx-16. And, uh, and that also had a CD version, mm -hmm. just like the Sega CD did. So it actually kind of made some sort of sense, but also didn't. And so, <laughs> and that, again, you plugged it in, it had a cartridge slot, two controller ports, and then could then read off the Laserdisc. And it would do, um, uh, they called it, uh, I think those were, um, there's another funny name for it. Because mm -hmm. that's another console that had a different name in Europe and Japan than, than in America. Yeah. Um, and that wasn't as popular. The Genesis one was popular. So basically, they sold the Sega Genesis Laserdisc attachment, but the Laserdisc attachment was the main device. Yeah. And so it was just a, I mean, it was just a bad idea. It's like, confusing. It's very confusing yeah. and incredibly expensive. Yeah. The cartridge alone was $600. Goodness. And it, like, you could just buy a Genesis. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, like they, by at that point, I think they were under $200. And so it was very much someone with money to burn who wanted something cool and new and who believed in this like advanced format of like 60 minutes of video sure. to go with their video games. Which, like, you know, Sega CD, you could have full motion video, but, like, very low quality and yeah. not a lot of it. Right. This, you know, could do a lot. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and it, the things that some arcade systems could do, 
uh, people were familiar with those types of games. And so um, it, it seemed very promising. But again, because it was this consumer electronics focused um, uh, 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 setup, yeah. it didn't have the same kind of like, they didn't have the same kind of instincts that a video game developer would have right. about things. They just thought, well, let's, let's make the technology and then everything else will fall into place. Mm-hmm. They didn't understand like the, uh, how, how to gauge consumer interest, how to like get developer support. I think there were like 20 games total for this thing. Um, but what's interesting about it is that um, it, it creates a unique problem for preservation because oh, this is because sure. uh, actually um, 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 like uh, CD-ROM games, cartridge games, all those can be, all that data can be dumped to to somewhere and stored on the internet uh-huh. uh, for preservation purposes or emulation or whatever. This, these can't as well because it, it combines a digital component and, which, an analog. and an analog component. And even the digital part, finding a player that can read and dump that data is kind of difficult. Sure. Right? And so um, I, uh, there's a great Twitter thread where someone talks about all the cool stuff about the laser active um, and, and, and the difficulty in preserving it. And the two main things are, one is a disk rot. These things, the laser discs were not meant to last or they didn't realize how long they would last. And they, they started to fall apart over the years. And the other part is uh, you know, the, the, the technological element of how hard it is to get the data. Sure. The other part is collectors don't want to devalue their collection by... By participating in a, in a preservation. Oh goodness! Isn't that really? crazy? Ah. You're like it, that seems so terrible. We're like, ah, I get it. If you if you put a lot of money into something and you don't want to like spend time to make it less valuable, right? I, yeah. I mean, the whole idea is ridiculous, but like, yeah. I understand the instinct. <laughs> yeah, okay, right? I understand the instinct. Um, but there's, there's a great happy ending to this, and it's it's in this thread too. Is um, the uh, laser disc the LD ROM format was also used? by the BBC for a project called the Domesday Project. Domesday. And there's a thing called the Domesday Book, which is a, a, an old census uh, book from the 18th century. Okay. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's sort of a, um, a, um, a famous uh, historical tome of, of the Enlightenment era you know, uh-huh. in Britain. And so um, it, uh, the BBC had this project where they said, well, let, let's make a modern version of that. Um, where we ha- you know, uh, and so they decided to use the LaserDisc uh, LD-ROM format for that. Um, for this this project of theirs, and it was just a bad call because they didn't the, the, that format was not long for the world. And so, um, as those discs began to fall apart, there was a much more serious effort to preserve them. And there was actually a, a device called the Domesday Duplicator, <laughs> which was designed to read this data. And so, the uh, people who want to save laser active games uh, now could you could also leverage that that technology to be able to read and 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 dump that data as well. That's awesome. What's great about the Domesday project is it was also in a uh, uh, partnership with Acorn Computers, Yay! which Martha you'll remember from when you brought up the BBC Micro uh, computer that Acorn also produced in the early eighties. Was it right? Yeah. Yeah. And so it, there's a, that, that relationship continued uh, to make uh, questionable technological decisions <laughs> into the 90s. Um, I, I think this, this stuff is just so interesting because of the bets people made mm-hmm. and the big bets and the things they did. And like these consumer electronics companies were like, video games are finally something that we can take seriously. And how do we get in on that? Yeah. I know. Let's just do it like it's anything else that we do. Right. <laughs> Instead of doing it the way that these game companies had learned to do it. And so I, it, it's an interesting sort of like a cautionary tale, I suppose. They might, like, they might have thought that like we could do it better by just doing it the way that's been successful for us. Oh yeah. And in fact, that's 
uh, almost assuredly what they thought. Yeah. Like Philips and uh, and the, the 3DO company, like and, and all those partners, they were like, well, these gaming companies, they're making a lot of money, mm-hmm. but they don't know what we know. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so that's that was that attitude that, that lasted for quite a while. The last example of this is actually from 2000. Um, it was developed in the late 90s. It kept getting pushed and pushed. It was finally okay. released in 2000. It's called a Nuon. And it's basically similar to uh, Laser Active, but for DVDs, oh. where you had um, um, uh, uh, DVD-ROM, which didn't exist at the time, mm-hmm. um, and then also d- DVD video. And so you'd have uh, a rail shooter style games. You'd have video with, with um, sprites and stuff on top of it. Um, but it was also meant to improve the quality of the DVD experience. And so it was, again, a technology that was uh, meant to be an add-on to existing DVD players, or you would get a DVD player with Nuon, a Nuon chip that mean it could play games and also do extra interactive things. And there are actually a couple of DVDs that you could still buy today that are Nuon capable, mm-hmm. but wow. you can't do anything with them because, yeah. no, no, there's no device that actually leverages it. Um, one of them is Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension. Uh, <laughs> I would love to know what those, uh, how that actually, those extra features work yeah. because I have a copy of that on TPD. Oh. Um, but that was really interesting. There's a great Ars Technica article about that effort. Um, and I won't get into that, but we'll put that in the show notes because that's also a great uh, thing of someone who just believed in something believe. and pushed it and it just it flopped because oh. it, was, it, it was this sort of thing. People didn't want these, this type of attitude. They... Um, they didn't want a partnered logo on a product they bought from anyone. Yeah. They wanted to buy something that they believed in on its own. Like it, this sort of licensing model is very interesting because it works in some cases, but it can't work in a lot of the ones they tried to do it here where it's this sort of extra thing. People want one format for video, yep. one format for music, yep. one format for something, and that's yep. when they'll get behind a licensing model. But when you start to have these different sort of like add-ons and extras that are not meant to sub- completely replace, yeah. but are meant to supplant and be the premium option, yeah. people want to buy, they want to believe in a brand, they want to buy the Samsung phone, the Apple phone, they want to, they want to get the Nintendo product, right. they, they want that, yeah. they don't want necessarily to, to buy the Philips version of some uh, consortium developed technology Yeah, thing, or an HD DVD. Well, yeah, that's the, yeah, the, yeah, like the format wars. Like the, you can't have two things surviving. And the lesson of that is not only that like one has to win, mm-hmm. but also that like there's only so much room for things, even if they're not directly com- com- competitive to each other. Yeah. Like the fact that those, the Nuon capable DVD players were not going to be every DVD player, yeah. that's what killed it. Yeah. Right. If, but if they had wanted to push to make it every DVD player that, not, I don't know what kind of chance they would have had, but that would have been the only way to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, because people aren't going to, they're not going to bifurcate a market, you know? Yeah. Anyways. There are 13 competing standards. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. Da, 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 da. There it is. <laughs> Transition. Da, 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 da. <laughs> da, 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 da. Is Steven representing one, two? That makes sense. <laughs> uh, my topic is video game soundtracks. Uh, because yeah, because when I was a kid, don't let up on this, Martha. Oh yeah, please, the whole time. I, I seriously like I would like. I don't know this song. Even I. Oh, is it Final Fantasy something? No. 
We're just gonna. Oh, it's Zelda! I heard. I missed it. I missed it. I didn't listen to Zelda soundtracks when I was a kid. Please continue. Okay. That was pretty great. So when I was a kid, I basically exclusively listened to video game soundtracks, and then I guess I grew out of that. But like. It was the thing for me and my brother. We would just like uh, find soundtracks questionably legally and uh, listen to those a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to talk about that because like it was a, I don't know, I guess it was a big part of like when I was growing up, but I don't know if it was for y'all or what, how, how, like what is your relationship with video game soundtracks? Did you listen to them at all when you were young? When I was a kid? Yeah. Um, sometimes I would leave Zelda on on the menu so I could listen to the menu music. Oh. Of seasons and ages <laughs> on my Game Boy <laughs> color, um, um, but I, I don't think I ever bought them on CD. I'm yeah. trying to remember if I ever did. Um, now I often will listen to video game soundtracks, but not when I was a kid. Oh, okay, and now that records are coming back, we have yes. a ton of video game soundtrack records. That yeah, we play. yeah, the fun irony to that. Like yes. Vinyl <laughs> versions of yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really cool. <laughs> when I was young, um video game music was, you know, I mean, sixteen bit was about as complicated as it gets. And then sure. you know, uh like I had a Nintendo sixty four yeah. and my friends had PlayStation and when things started to get a little bit more orchestral, but to me I never really thought of video game soundtracks as anything to listen to outside of video game. It didn't huh. make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. And even now when I think of the mu- video game music I like. I think about the way that it works in the context of the game. Mm-hmm. When people say like, oh, I love listening to that song. I'm like, I don't understand what you're talking about. It just doesn't, I don't think of it in those terms. Yeah. Even though that's definitely a lot of that music does exist that way. Like it doesn't, I think good video game music, like a good overworld theme sure. is something that works in the overworld. Yeah. It's not meant to be listened to in headphones on the bus. Like that's that's my attitude. I, I think I'm wrong about that, but like that's just the way I approach it. And so sure. I don't seek it out because it wasn't as accessible to me uh, when I when I was younger. When I could have like got the idea for it, I yeah. suppose. Yeah, I always felt like it was really hard to. I mean, I I think when I was listening to these, I was like eight or something, so I wasn't gonna try to go out and buy CDs. Uh, I guess I could have, but didn't uh, <laughs> but i always thought that also were- i didn't have napster until i went to college so fair enough <laughs> another yeah. thing i totally missed me too <laughs> napster just flew by me i was like yeah. oh that's the thing oh it's gone yeah <laughs> you had better yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, um but i always felt like it was hard to get like cds of um uh, soundtracks because i just thought that it was not a popular thing but i think it's a lot it was a lot bigger back then than I thought it was. It mm-hmm. was just, uh, I, I wasn't aware of things that were happening. Mm-hmm. But I think that like, in terms of like the video game soundtrack, the I think that the way you're approaching it, Mark, isn't exactly wrong per se. Because like, I think a lot of it is in context. Like the overall music in Zelda that I apparently missed out on uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, is like meant to be overall music. But when I listen to that music, it reminds me of Legend of Zelda Overworld. And it reminds me of those yeah. feelings I had when I was going through the overworld and mm-hmm. stuff. And so I think that like that's a lot of the appeal of soundtrack music uh, to me is that like it makes it it like it brings back those feelings or it makes me feel those feelings because like the soundtrack the music is supposed to make you feel the way that the game is trying to make you feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? 
I don't know. That's that's how I that's how I approach it. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, when I was when I was growing up, I uh, would uh, find the soundtracks on a bunch of different uh, websites and things. Um, I maybe we'll link to some of them. There's this one. It's like Kingdom Hearts Insider or something. It was a forum, and they had a whole bunch of like links of rip uh, soundtracks and stuff. And it was great. Wait for Kingdom Hearts. <laughs> No, it was not for Kingdom Hearts. Okay. <laughs> just because you don't like that series. I do not like that series. But uh, it was just called that. Let's see if I can find it. That's how it started and then just got out of hand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. Like everything Kingdom Hearts. KingdomHeartsInsider.com. Mm-hmm. There's a forum and it has a bunch. It has like a, like a bunch of different rips and stuff hmm. uh, of it, uh, of a bunch of different games. Um, and it used to have like, they used to be like, Categorize and stuff, and you can like go through it alphabetically and stuff, and find your uh, your music. And they used to update it regularly. Um, they probably got taken down or something. <laughs> Is it still active? Well, there's just so many more avenues to get that music legitimately yeah, now than easy, there yeah. used to be. It's much easier. Oh, they still update. Ah, <laughs> I'm gonna link to this in the in the in the show notes. Maybe maybe, but you know, buy buy your the stuff though. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I shouldn't like it. I don't know. <laughs> So you should go so. look at it. You should That's go look what, at it for historical reasons. Yeah, yes. for educational, academic purposes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, so um, I, I feel like, like with with relation to video game soundtracks, um, I think good soundtracks they set the tone of the game very well. And I think that like when I think of a good soundtrack, that's what I think of is like it. If you listen to the whole thing, you like get a an overarching feel of like how the game plays. Mm-hmm. I don't know how y'all feel about that, but like that's how I approach it, and that's how like I try to approach the soundtrack in in Fingeons, for example. Is that like I want this music to feel like the 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 level that you're going through? Yeah. Um, Charles went over that a little bit in um in the code comment episode we had on Fingeons. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I don't know. That's that's how I like to approach it. You know, it's interesting you say it like you want the music to to remind you of the game. Yeah. But isn't the music like a if the music were different, wouldn't the game feel different? And isn't that Right. Isn't that just so that's th- part of it. So isn't it whatever music it is is the correct thing for the game because it's a part of it? I not necessarily like if it's not Mac I keep trying to think of a game where the soundtrack doesn't really work mm-hmm. with the game very well. But when it's not matched up, it can be kind of weird. Like if the well, if I guess the, what I mean is that it's like anything where they're like, go, if you're going for a certain feel with everything else, and then the music is just like, yeah, yeah. I guess that I was mean, a face I made. You couldn't see it. <laughs> <laughs> they could hear it. I'm sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In terms of like games that I feel like have uh, discordant music, uh, there's this game my dad has been playing for like months called uh, uh, Oh Geez. Flame in the Flood. Oh. Uh, yeah, have you played it? No, but I went to a talk at GDC where they talked about how they made the river. Oh, okay. And the islands and stuff. And it was really interesting, but it, a lot of it went over my head because it was all ma- a lot of math. Ah, okay. So, because it was procedurally generated. Right, yes. So. Um, it Super seems cool. like it's a fun game. Uh, I mean, it must be because my dad has been playing it for months. But, uh, like, the music is, like, kind of cheery and upbeat folk-sounding music. Really? Yeah. That's weird. I know, because like the game itself is really dark and stuff. And when your character is low on, it's like a roguelike. And when your character is low on health or low on resources and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, like this, the, the character's uh, face gets all like bloodied and sickly looking and stuff. And it just looks really dark. And like it's, 
there's the wolves are all in black and stuff and they look all evil and it's but then you like you're going down the river and stuff and you're hearing this cheering music and it just mm-hmm. feels so strange is it meant to invoke a, like kind of an irony I don't. Maybe you don't get it because you're not playing the game. I, that's fair because I'm not. Yeah, I guess like my dad doesn't feel like it's different. But my I'm giving it a lot of benefit of the doubt. But it's it seems like there would be reasons for that kind of uh, juxtaposition. Yeah, it could just be that like they like the music and didn't think about it that hard. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, uh, but yeah, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious if y'all felt like if you had any soundtracks that really like encapsulated the feeling of the game that you were playing really well. I'm sure that like Nintendo things probably come to mind, but. Maybe even other examples too. Well, I mean, not to be a cliche, but like, yeah, Nintendo things. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Mario Galaxy does a oh. really good job. Like yeah. the main Mario Galaxy theme, um, and um, as it it you start out in this small place, yeah. and it's kind of a, the music's kind of like um, it's soft and it's orchestral mm-hmm. and it feels big but quiet. Yeah, and then you get to the over, they get to the 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 hub world, and it becomes sort of majestic. And then it it like it guides you, and each piece is really good. And the thing about Mario games is that like every song is a theme song in a way, yeah. like more than most titles. I think sure. um, that's probably a pretty. Cr- I'm sure that's probably true of other other games, but that's the way it feels to me. That like um, when I think of like Zelda, like Zelda has all this great music, but I only know the main title theme. I love that song so much, and so I feel like I love Zelda music, but I'm not actually that familiar with it. But that main title theme is so powerful. And there's a reason you don't hear it in the game that much, because mm-hmm. it's not really good in the game. It's good as the theme song. Right? Well, yeah. And also, like, if you hear it all the time, it's not as powerful. Well, right. But I mean, it doesn't, it works really well as a piece of like, um, of, as a linear piece. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, less so than other types of music and sure. games work. Sure. But Mario music, all Mario songs are theme songs, and mm-hmm. they all work everywhere. Mm-hmm. And, but Mario Galaxy does a great job of like, of of get, letting you know the majesty of the world and 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 as it opens up into these this big wide open spaces yeah. that is that are that are like um that are empty but like connected by nodes like it does a really good job of evoking that feel yeah um I think better than any other Mario game. Mm-hmm. I really like the the conservatory theme. Yeah, that it just like expands over time and it gets bigger as you like get to more of the area. And yeah, stuff. that I really like that a lot. Um, I did that in Super Mario Galaxy too, but I didn't like that game as much, and I didn't like the the way they did it as much. I think. Yeah, Mario Galaxy two is like better levels, but as a whole experience, it's not as well designed. Mm. You know, the reviewers who gave it a better score are the ones who loved like the mechanics and the level design. Yeah. And the ones who gave it a worse score are ones who like like the whole whole picture of Mario Galaxy and Mario Galaxy 2 didn't do as much of that. Yeah. You know? That's how I felt about it too. Um, my my go-to example for these is Donkey Kong Country music because mm-hmm. I love Donkey Kong Country music. Um, especially uh, the transition from Donkey Kong Country, the first one, to the second one. Uh, the first one, uh, you know, it's got the jungle theme. Um, and it's got, you know, all actually, like, a lot of it is just, uh, in the first game, a lot of it is, like, not marimbas, that's not the right word. But it feels jungly mm-hmm. and, like, nature and stuff. There's, like, factory levels in the first one, ironically. But, like, uh, and that has 
music too, but like it's mainly it's mainly jungle uh, nature themed stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but like it's not it's not exactly cheery. It's just like wild and it's like polyrhythmic. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and it feels a little dangerous, but like you know you could still live in the world sort of thing. Whereas in Donkey Kong Country Two, I really love this because like then you're traveling to King K. Rule's island, mm-hmm. um, and you're you know you're fighting in the Kremlings on their home turf, and like everything is way darker. Like all of the worlds and stuff, like you have like abandoned um, uh, amusement parks and stuff. And the amusement park music is like it's bumping, but like, <laughs> but like it's also it's also still like really dark and stuff because there's just nothing going on. There's a bunch of skulls everywhere. The entire environment there's lava. Um, there's giant hives of bees um, with giant bees cool, cool. attacking. <laughs> stuff. But like it feels way scarier, feels way da- more dangerous and stuff than the first one did. And I really like the the transition between those two games mm-hmm. uh, because like it really made me feel, it really made me sort of understand why King K. Rool was trying to attack Donkey Kong, take the island because like their island sucked, <laughs> their own island was bad. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Martha, did you have any soundtracks you really enjoyed? Yeah, now that we're talking about this, I am just going through like all these games that I super like the yeah. soundtracks to. I think one of the first ones that I listen like would look up on Proto YouTube or whatever was mm-hmm. um like all the mist music, like oh, yeah. the intro themes. Yeah, those are super good. Um, cause they're like choral arrangements yeah, and yeah. stuff. Oh. so powerful <laughs> um and um oh i really liked um alpha centauri's music because it like the in, the theme is really good at the beginning but also the ambient music makes you feel like you're in space and also like you're alone um which was or like it's dangerous yeah i don't know Ten- there's a lot of tension mm-hmm. um spy fox I think it's second or third one actually had a whole soundtrack on the CD. And oh, so you really? could put it in the CD player and listen to like all these. They're just parodies of like, <laughs> um, like James Bond songs. Oh, uh, that's pretty good. <laughs> which is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, uh, what was, we would listen to it all the time. Like man with the golden bun. Which is all about a, a baker who who made golden buns. Nice. <laughs> um, and uh, and live and let fry, which is about fr- fry like frying fish. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, and that reminds me of the uh, the um, the GoldenEye soundtrack. Because it's just all the golden, or it's just the 007 theme, and all of the music is literally just the 007 theme, but slightly riffed off of it or something. Yeah. And my brother listened to that soundtrack all the time, and I always thought it just, they all sounded the same. <laughs> and he has like a favorite one, and I'm like, they're all the same, Charles. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it's like, it's all just like, it's Nintendo just, 64 imitation. Yeah. I, I guess there's a charm to that. I don't know. I don't know. It's just <laughs> the whole time. And I'm like, okay, 
All right. <laughs> you can only feel so much like James Bond. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> um, recently, I've been listening a lot to a game I don't like at all. Oh. Um, but the soundtrack is really cool. Um, Far Cry 5 yeah. okay. has a really cool, interesting soundtrack. Really? Um, yeah. And it's all very like banjo, plinky, plinky, but I like it. I've um, also been listening to Destiny 2's soundtrack. Okay. That's really cool. Oh, and somebody- Destiny has a really interesting soundtrack story because yeah. didn't who was the one who made the original soundtrack that never got the music of the spheres? Or yeah, something? wasn't it Paul McCartney? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, isn't there a Paul McCartney song or something in Destiny Two? One of my coworkers. Yeah, they, I think that then that I, that music did get leaked uh, because like whoever you know had a copy was like I'm not going to keep this in the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Whoops! Now it's on a like open. Like Internet Archive. How how did that happen? I don't know. (laughs) And isn't there like some debate amongst Destiny fans as to like, I mean, you never know these things for certain, but like people are like, oh, they should have kept that music or whatever. Not that they know exactly how it would play because there's always changes and stuff. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, how different from the actual music is it? Like, I don't know because I didn't really play the first game. I've only played the second one. So I don't can't comment on it very much i remember when the, that's it was like a single that yeah, came out yeah and it seemed weirdly unrelated mm-hmm. uh i guess there's a whole story as to why it exists but there's an interesting thing about games that have soundtracks but then also a song yeah right yeah so portal is a right. really good example yes. of that where the soundtrack to portal is incredible but people remember it for the jonathan colton song right Da, 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 da. Still alive, yeah, <laughs> which is great. But the soundtrack is really, really good as well. Yeah, um, and uh, Portal Two, the same story. Portal Two has good. Yeah, mm-hmm. and a lot of times it comes from it's. I, maybe this is not. It's sort of damning it with faint praise a little bit, but it's the orchestration and the arrangement yeah. more so necessarily than the actual composition. Like the style of the Portal Two music is it, it the choice in how it was put together is really interesting and, and has a theme and a, and, a, and, a, and a sense. Right. The actual melodies themselves are fine. Like, I, that's, I, I don't want to be cruel, but like, I think what's, the, what's most um, stand out to is, is that sense, that feeling that consists across the entire soundtrack. And, uh, yeah. and I mean that as a compliment. Yeah. Uh, but I, when I think I, I can't really hum a bit of, a, of, a, of a, a sequence of it so much, but I don't mind that that's the fact, you know? Yeah.
Well, they don't all need to be Mario music where you can sing all of them yeah. whenever you want. Uh, like some of them can just be background music. And like sometimes it can just be ambient noise. It doesn't even have it's to be. It's ambient noise hour on the current. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. So like, uh, I guess I'd agree. Cause like, yeah, I can't think of, there's, well, there's one song in particular from Pearl 2 that I really like. I can't remember the name of it. It's like the jump pad song or something. <laughs> I don't know how it, I know what you're talking about. I'll, it happens when you jump on the jump pad thing. I'll link <laughs> to it because it's fun. Uh, uh, yeah, that's another. That one's also banging. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like you can just have music that's like just background noise that you don't even have to pay attention to at all. Yeah. And, and that also can work for your game because that can be part of the game. Maybe yeah. you're playing a Sudoku game and you don't want to like you don't want people sitting there head banging to the music as they're trying to figure out their puzzles. Well, so. that gets back to my initial, uh, like, um, uh, my relationship with video game music yeah. is is mostly that, mm-hmm. right? That it, it serves a purpose in the game, and that's where its purpose is served. Right. But um, but people still they'll they'll listen to these full soundtracks, mm-hmm. and and so the question is 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 it could it be in fact detrimental for some music to be like really, really good for just its own listening experience. Is there uh isn't to say that it's a sign of, yeah. but could it be that that some music that's like that could isn't quite as perfectly suited for its game as it is just great music to listen to? Sure, you know, yeah. Like I don't know. Uh, I mean, like, and there's probably a lot of music that's really perfect for its purpose that gets unheralded because you can't really play it on a Spotify playlist, right? Yeah, I think. Like most of the tracks on for like the Borderlands soundtracks, they're mm-hmm. all so good and make the world seem really cool. Um, but like, there's only one or two you can actually listen to. But they also do the thing where they put actual songs, like actual, oh, sure. actual, like I threw that and through um, the Telltale version, Tales from the Borderlands, rest in peace, Telltale. Um, <laughs> mm. uh, like I found so much, so many of the bands that I listen to now through yeah. the soundtracks. Oh, sure. Oh. Yeah, I know that like there's a lot of soundtracks that people listen to and they don't play the game or they haven't even played the game. So like even when they don't have the context, the music is still they still really like it. Yeah. I know like Lane does that a lot. He'll like listen to music that um, that he hasn't even played the game of. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it is kind of weird that like you can still it could I guess it could still it could still like be it can still be a plus cuz like people will be talking about your game at the at the very least, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um but I I think that it can also be detrimental in a lot of ways too in that like if your music is like really good, it can also be distracting. And and yeah, as, as it Gwent be, music, uh, the Gwent music. Well, never mind. Is it, it really good or really not good? Or it's fair. It's good, but then it gets really repetitive. So it's not really that's right because you play that game for a while. Yeah. Oh, and the music is like really high octane. Yeah. For what is essentially just oh, a card game. Okay. Yes. <laughs> But it's like good, like 
you know, like if it wasn't you having to listen to it forever uh, while you're, or, and Dylan has a bug in his game where the Gwent music happens outside of Gwent too, while oh, he's just no. walking around. <laughs> so heard that song a lot. <laughs> well, that's hilarious. That's mm-hmm. I remember uh, my brother was talking about how he's designed the only song in Hyperdot right now. Come on, Charles, get it together. Because uh, he keeps saying he wants to make more songs and he hasn't done it yet. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, maybe it's because he's putting in like eight billion levels that are all really cool. Jeez, Steven. <laughs> <laughs> Thrown under the bus. Uh, <laughs> well, you should just write a couple songs for him. Uh, oh, man. I can't do that. <laughs> uh, Believe, I, Steven. I, I, you know, I used to like when I was younger, I tried to make music. Um, using let's make a music. Yes, <laughs> using uh Sony. Uh, what was it? Is acid something? Acid groove? Sony acid something? I think it's just. Sony Is it just acid? acid? Okay. And at least I think that's what they okay. call it now. I hate that name because it makes it sound like I'm making acid in it. Anyway, uh-huh. um, I tried doing that, and it was really just me like taking a bunch of clips and stuff, and like chopping them up and trying to put them in stuff. Yeah, I did okay. Uh-huh. It wasn't that great. <laughs> um, seems like it'd be a lot of work something i could do yeah well so. i the way i write music is yeah. all in midi yes. these days and it's uh if you if you have any musical sense mm-hmm. and put yourself in front of a midi composer and you will have a good time and be able to express yourself yeah because the frustrating thing about tools like when you're especially when you're in like audio samples and like you don't have like a great recording environment yeah you your creativity can be sapped sure because you can't express yourself enough Mm-hmm. And so, um, but like a, a MIDI workstation is pretty good. I should put you in front of one. I I think I used a MIDI workstation a long time ago. Yeah. Too. That was a long time ago. <laughs> All of this stuff I experimented with, I was like, I'm done. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I guess I was the same way with making video games, but here I am today. Yeah. Uh, I could try it again. <laughs> I would, yeah, I would like to try it again. Maybe I could do that during the global game. Yeah. Uh, what I was what I was uh, gonna say is that my brother um, he's he's constantly thinking about how the music will listen, especially in Hyperdot, because there's only the one song, so like it, it can't get repetitive or old. Uh, because I mean, like then you'll just stop playing because yeah. you'll just get on your nerves. Um, and so he, he in fact talked about that in his interview that like he made sure he was really conscious of how uh, repetitive the song would feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that like the song changes a bit in certain contexts. Like when you're in a level, it's more intense and stuff. Cause like there's more things going on. Yep. But when you're outside a level, there's just, it's the same music, but like you took some of the stuff out to make it feel more like a menu thing. And it's less, it's more chill. Mm-hmm. So you can like relax in it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so that helps like the little context and mm-hmm. contexts and stuff mm-hmm. really help a lot. Yeah. I've written a lot of music for Metro Nexus yeah. and I really get a kick out of it because uh, each, I have a song that goes for each art style in the game and it's definitely a case of I I just write something interesting and then pair it with a uh, with art that I've done or the art that I've gotten from someone else, mm-hmm. and then that creates the mood, yeah. right? So I'm not really designing one for the other. I just find a pairing that I like that works and makes sense. Um, the 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 problem I've been having is with my menu music, which I like, but I don't think is right for the menu music in my sure. game. And I've been I've been trying to replace it with something, but like I I have not been able to figure it out. You know, I I agree with you in yeah. that like I like the music because it gets in your head. Oh, it's like, so it really gets in your head. That's its problem, actually. Oh, I think. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I think I think it gets it. I think it can drill into your head in a way that's distracting. Sure. Um, I I still like it, but uh, I, I but that's a piece of music that has a specific purpose. Yeah. Whereas the music I'm doing for each of the levels, um, it 
the character of it um, is determined by its own qualities. Yeah. Uh, whereas the menu has qualities that I have to I have to hew to, mm. and so the demands are different. So sure. like what you, you were saying, your brother was talking about, yeah. like there are certain demands of that that are you have to be more deliberate with, and I just haven't put the time in to like come up with like the a balance that works for that. Yeah. It's really interesting about the way like uh, music can change. They talk about this a lot in, in film. Like mm-hmm. if you, if you ever see a movie where a dramatic scene between two characters is happening and there's a lot of music, you know that it's a bad scene. Yeah. Because it, it, the, the music is, is uh, tends to like paper over like uh, an unconvincing performance or bad pacing or, a, or or an unclear script as to what wow. it's supposed to mean, music will then fill in the gaps. And that, that's what it's supposed to do. Yeah. But you can sometimes tell when they're when you lean on that a little bit. Yeah. And so music is incredibly powerful because it can it can deliver so much. Um, and so um, w- w- with video games, that's why I think it's like, when you say like uh, a music that matches with a tone, mm-hmm. I, I, I tend to feel like any music can match any tone because mm-hmm. the music creates it in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you have something very specific, like you, when you know, it's like this section has to be this, yeah. then suddenly c- coming out with music for it is so much harder. Oh, sure. Right. It isn't just writing to that. It's, yeah. it's that you, you start actually writing away from it on accident, you know, without intentions. Oh. And then you have to do, you have to essentially do a little more iteration and play testing of your music that. in a way that you don't have to in other situations where you have more of an open-ended goal. In mind. Makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's probably why Charles had such a hard time with the Finjan soundtrack. Yeah, give him a we, break. <laughs> yeah, because we would tell him, make it feel exactly like this thing, and he spent forever trying to do it. Yeah. I think he did it, but like, you know, it just took yeah. him a long time. Well, the other way you could do it is have a soundtrack and then make a game to it, which is, if I I don't know if I've ranted about Louis Zong on here on the Pro- podcast yet. Have. Anyway, you have, you have to us, but I don't know about if you've done it on the show yet. Okay. Louis Zong is awesome. He makes music and also is an animator for We Bear Bears. Mm-hmm. Um, really good. And um, he's got a CD that is a video game soundtrack, but there's no video game for it yet. And it's great. <laughs> it's, I listen to it all the time. It's so good. Yeah, I've heard a little bit of it. It's like, it does feel like it does come from something, but was written with nothing in mind. Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think he wants to make a game with it. Oh, but okay. I would just love to do a Louis Zong jam where you take like, because all his music could be, it's all cool, ambient little, like little ditties. Yeah. Um, and like, oh man, it'd be so fun to do a jam where people just make a game based on the, his music. Yeah. That would be really cool. <laughs> want more soundtracks with jazz music in it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, SimCity 3000 has jazz music in it. Yeah. It's good. Oh, yeah. I think Polygon just did a video on Sims soundtrack. Yeah? Yeah, and how the, the jazz piano, and they interviewed the person who composed it. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I should look into that. <laughs> yeah, I love that soundtrack. It's great. You know, I, I really like jazz music, and I would just like to see it in more things because uh-huh. it's cool. Isn't the thing about jazz, though, that you have to give yourself over entirely to the jazz? Like, isn't doing something else kind of ruining the jazz? That's. I mean, spice. Could that maybe explain why you, you, you tend to see it more in games that are slower paced? Oh, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, it's in uh, Spy Foxes. Speaking of Spy Foxes, more 
like overworld walking around soundtrack is all mm-hmm. jazz. Yeah, sure. Isn't uh isn't um Grim Fandango kind of jazzy? Yes, it is. I, I, mm-hmm. I believe it has jazz soundtrack. It. I always wanted to make. I think I talked about it on the show before, but I, I always wanted to make a soundtrack or a, a game where like you make jazz music as you play it. Mm-hmm. I just I, I haven't figured out the best way to go about doing that yet. Uh-huh. But that'd be so cool. Well, it's jazz, so any button input you do would just make some noise. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Wouldn't that just be jazz? I mean, yeah, but like it should. The player should like feel like they're making good music and not just random noise because then you're making free jazz and I'm not asking for free jazz in music you totally missed my burn on jazz (laughs) (laughs) I ignored that and assumed you're talking about free jazz ah right of course (laughs) (laughs) Uh, well I'll play us out that's our show if you haven't already subscribe to Nice Games Club in your favorite podcast app and be sure to give it a good review if you liked it, or a nice like us. We really need to know you're out there, so leave a review and tell all your friends too. We also want to hear directly from you, so follow us on Twitter and all the other things at Nice Games Club, and email us at contact at nicegames.club. Lastly, you can find more about the show, your nice hosts, as well as get all the links and show notes from this and other episodes at nicegames.club. So until we start again, remember to play nice and make nice. Well, I'll play us out. That's our show. If you haven't already, subscribe to Nice Games Club and your favorite podcast app. And be- <laughs> play us out. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's after my own joke. <laughs> yeah. I needed external validation. <laughs> okay. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.